Welcome to episode 13 of the Enter New Energy Transition podcast. Today, with an episode on the invasion of Ukraine and its implications for European energy policy. This episode comes out on day eight of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. War, destruction and death have been flickering over our TV and mobile screens all over the last days. While these acts in itself are horrible and terrible, we come to realize that this war is likely to actually flip the dice on European energy policy in a substantial way. Hence, in this episode, I'm joined by Thijs van der Gaaf, who is associate professor at Ghent University in Belgium, and he shares insights on how dependent Europe is on Russian fossil fuels, especially gas, and we discuss what kind of implications this geopolitical crisis may have on European energy policy. We are only approaching week one of this conflict. The situation in Ukraine is very dynamic. While there have been substantial sanctions put into place by the EU and other Western nations, and for example also Japan in the first days, first energy-related policy changes have also been put forward. Hence, this episode, because of this dynamic situation, can only be a snapshot analysis. However, we hope that you learn something and um, we send our thoughts and power and strength to the Ukrainian people. Every energy policy decision uh, comes with its own set of, of losses, if you want, of, of downsides. Um, that's, that's inevitable. Welcome, dear Enter New Energy Transition audience. Today is the 28th of February and the Russian invasion in Ukraine um, has started four to five days ago. And this is, yeah, it's a major, it's a, it's a major happening here in Europe. And um, so this is why I would love to have to have a chat about it to actually give you some more context of what this could mean for European energy policy. So that's why also the name of this episode is you, the invasion in Ukraine and implications for the European energy policy. And I have a guest with me here in this podcast that I'm really happy that he actually managed to join. He's Associate Professor for International Politics at, Ghent, uh, at the Ghent Institute for International and European Studies. Um, he works on the topics like energy security, climate policy and international politics. And he's also studied in several uh, and researched in several places among them, as was also print, the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs. Um, he's written a book called Global Energy Politics, and he also co-authored, uh, if I'm not mistaken, four books. And one of them is the uh, Palgrave Handbook on International Political Economy of Energy and the Politics, politics and Institutions of Global Energy Governance. So um, welcome to the podcast, Thijs van der Graaf. Thank you, Julius. It's a pleasure to be here. Super cool. Thijs, I found you um, while actually looking through blog posts today in the morning and also Twitter. Um, and what I saw there was then on your Twitter feed is very informative about this. Yeah, about the situation that we are having right now about energy security, energy policy, and obviously also what implications that might have. So I'm really happy to actually have you on board. But be like, but you know, we all know it's bad. We all kind of like, we are following our Twitter feeds and seeing what's happening in Ukraine. But maybe, you know, for, for starting off this, this episode now, can you give us an idea of what are actually the inter interdependencies that we have with, that we have between Europe and Russia in terms of energy? Sure. Um, so Russia is actually our main energy supplier. It's, it's um, our biggest source of coal imports of oil imports and of natural gas imports. So all three of the fossil fuels, Russia is number one supplier. If you look at gas, uh, around 40% of our imports come from um, Russia. 
But obviously, there's a lot of difference, um, differences between member states. Some member states do not import any gas molecule from Russia at all, uh, member states like Portugal or Spain, um, while others are 100% dependent on Russia for, for their natural gas supplies, countries like uh, Austria and some other countries in, in, in the East. Germany is a bit in the middle, a bit more than half of its gas comes from, from, from Russia. Um, and when you look at oil, uh, the picture is that uh, a little less than a third of our oil supplies come from uh, Russia. Um, so it's also our, our biggest oil supplier. How did this this dependence really really come into place? Because you you know looking back, okay, you're you're in Belgium, but like when we look at the Netherlands, for example, they also had quite some substantial gas production, um, which has been phased out, if I'm not mistaken, due to um, uh, mi minor earthquakes in the area that were like uh, destructing houses and buildings and stuff. So, so is this state that we're having right now, is that something that developed only over the last decades or has it always, have we always been so dependent on Russia since, yeah, for decades now? Right. An, uh, an excellent question. Um, if you look at the evolution of gas demands in, in Europe, it actually, for the last decade or so, has been relatively stagnant. It has gone up and down again, but the peak in natural gas demand in Europe was in like 2010, and we're still at the same level. So the, it's not the case that there is a dash for gas in Europe like you hear sometimes. Uh, what is happening, and you rightly pointed out, is that our indigenous gas production is, is declining rapidly. The Netherlands are phasing out production from the Groningen gas field, the largest conventional uh, gas field in Europe. Originally, originally that was planned for 2030, but they brought forward in time the deadline uh, by eight years. Um, so that has a major impact together with declining gas production in, in the North Sea. Uh, that has a major impact on, on our import needs and there's just a, a growing import gap that needs to be filled. And that explains why Even, you know, eight years ago, we had already a Ukraine crisis, the annexation of Crimea and, and destabilization of eastern Ukraine. Europe was then 30% dependent on Russia for its gas uh, imports. Today, it's 40%. And the import gap is just the result of our declining indigenous gas production. It's, it's, it's quite, quite staggering, actually, no? isn't it? To, to know that we had in 14, 15, we had this, this Crimea crisis and all what we did is buying more, uh, more gas, more fossil fuels from Russia and actually kind of financing the war machine that Putin is like, yeah, commanding over. Um, yeah, it's quite, I feel it's quite staggering. You said that some countries are more dependent and than others. And I know in your Twitter feed, you had this, 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 this one post where you said, spot the problem. And there you see that, for example, as you said, Austria and Finland uh, depend 100% of their gas imports come from Russia. But there's other countries where that's not the case. How is it that, that we have so, so big differences? What are the structures, like the underlying structures in energy systems, for example, I think you said Spain and Portugal, that they are not having, they don't require this this gas or is it just that they have gas from other sources so oil markets and gas markets function in totally different ways oil is quite fungible it's it's a liquid it's easy to transport you can put it on a pipeline you can put it on a truck you can put it on a ship and basically export it to wherever you want so there's a global market and we uh, roughly know the global uh, price of oil there is no global price of gas because gas is a different commodity it's a gaseous substance 
which is um, far more difficult to transport and to handle. So you depend for most, if you, Europe depends for most of its imports on natural gas uh, pipelines. Um, but there's also a growing LNG market. Um, you can liquefy natural gas if you cool it substantially, and then you can put it on LNG tankers. And if you have LNG import terminals, then you can also receive those cargoes of, of liquid gas. Those are basically the two modes of natural gas transport. So for countries close to uh, Russia, um, who are connected to pipeline systems that, that stretch all the way to Siberia, in some cases 3,000, 4,000 kilometers, uh, the dependency has grown historically and, and is explained by the fact that Russia has just uh, so gigantic gas reserves, which it can um, produce at very low lifting costs. Um, and uh, countries um, farther away from Russia, they have just um, uh, developed different dependencies. Uh, I mentioned Spain, but Spain is connected with pipelines to North Africa. Uh, importing a lot of um, uh, gas from Algeria, for instance. And Spain is also pro probably also due to its geographic location. It has invested substantially in LNG import capacity and it can import from Qatar, from Nigeria, from Egypt, from basically all over the world. Oh, yeah, that's kind of interesting. You mentioned LNG now twice, which, as you said, stands for liquefied natural gas. There is countries, as you just mentioned, that have LNG terminals, and but there's other countries that don't have LNG terminals. For example, in Germany, there's been plants, I think, for at least two, but then they, these plants were shuttered some months ago. And now, the day after uh, the, the Russian invasion, um, the German... Um, uh, yeah, ministry minister for for economic affairs said, okay, we we're gonna go out out of Russian oil. We have to decrease the, in the, the dependence on Russian gas, but we'll build LNG terminals now. So, and I guess LNG terminals can be something in the in the short run, like some kind of an option there. But on the other hand, the, you know, LNG is still fossil, and LNG, and it's probably also more more uh, expensive, I guess, because it needs to be, as you said, cooled and it needs to be shipped and all things. So what are the what are the issues with LNG altogether? Obviously, on the one hand, it gives you the independence, but what are the neg what what can be negative side effects if we all gonna go now into LNG LNG and build a lot of LNG terminals? Well, you don't build, build an LNG terminal overnight, so it takes time and obviously it costs a lot of money. So you want it to be in operation for years, even decades. So um, we need to see how all of these investments in, in fossil gas infrastructure, how they uh, are synchronized with the overarching European goal to become climate neutral by 2050, which is in 28 years. That's, that's already uh, one point to, take, to consider. The other point is that um, if you invest substantially in LNG import capacity, the, the next question is, where are you going to import from? And there, if you don't sign long-term contracts, then you might be shut out of the market if you don't pay a very high premium on uh, gas, uh, gas price. Because most of the gas, of, of the LNG exports, are sold under long-term contracts, in, in many cases to Asia, which is the biggest market for LNG, far bigger than, than Europe. Uh, so, for instance, if you look at Qatar, a major LNG exporter, most of its exports are already tied into long-term contracts going to Asia. And there's not a lot of flexibility, so you cannot just, it's not like a supermarket for gas where you can just uh, hop in and say, well, we need X uh, billion cubic meters of gas, can you deliver? There is some flexibility, but it's limited, so you need to tie this also into long-term contracts. 
And thirdly, I would say as a downside, um, if you switch your dependence from Russia to a dependence on countries like Nigeria, like uh, Qatar, uh, and others, Azerbaijan, uh, Azerbaijan is more for pipeline gas, but in any case, there's a, there's a danger that um, if you rush to alternative suppliers, you get locked into dependency relationships with regimes with which you do not, do not necessarily share the same political values or which do not have you know, democratic institutions or a benign, let's say, foreign policy. There's a lot of uh, moral outrage regarding Qatar and how it treated the workers that constructed the, the stadiums for the upcoming World Cup uh, football. Uh, but when it comes to gas, there's, there's, I mean, the, the, the red carpet is, is rolled out for uh, Qatari officials. So that there's, there's the third danger that I would see uh, in building this LNG import infrastructure. Yeah. So, so when you, so if one would sum it up, what you just said is like that LNG is an option, but it also has downsides. And the, but now we then we come into this major problem that we always have when we talk about energy policy, isn't it? That there's no such thing as a silver bullet, and because it all takes time, it always, always has downsides, and it very often brings us into new new dependencies um, and the negatives. Yeah, the, the side effects with 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 renewable energies, or oh, not side effects, but is the same as real energies. You can't just build it as you said overnight um yeah exactly well what i what i often say is that you know the acronym tina there is no alternative well for energy policy i think the acronym tanya applies which means there are no ideal alternatives and we should be frank and open about that and energy policy decision making is about making trade-offs and about um, putting value on, on on those things that you deem important And, and realizing that you know every energy policy decision uh, comes with its own set of, of losses, if you want, of, of downsides, um, that's that's inevitable. Yeah, mm. it's quite yeah. <laughs> But maybe that's also why it's so so interesting. These you know this energy transition thing because there are no such thing as easy answers. And as you said, it's it's very much about trade offs. And yeah, what do you value? What is more important? And then the question is how we. How you can also um, convince locals or you know people who who vote for governments uh, that this is the right thing and this might not be the, the the right thing. Last question about LNG terminals. I know that as I said, and I already know this is a very German perspective always, is but we in Germany don't have LNG terminals, and I know there's other countries. And you said okay, it's Spain that has some LNG terminals, maybe, and maybe I know there's one I think in Belgium. But how many do we have altogether in Europe, and what is the capacity? Is it like that with these? LNG terminals that we have, could they maybe ramp up their, not production, but like their inflow? Or are they also already um, running on, on, on 100% of, uh, of capacity? No, there is spare capacity. Um, I think Europe as a whole has, has an import capacity in LNG of, um, uh, or is importing around 108 BCM uh, last year, uh, compared to an overall gas demand of a little bit less than 500 BCM, right? Um, there is spare capacity. The trouble is that you need to, the linking infrastructure to bring the molecules to where you want to have them. Uh, as I mentioned, Spain is really the country with the largest spare capacity, so it could import far more LNG than it does today. But you need to bring those molecules to Austria, to Germany, to Slovakia, you name it. And you need to cross the Pyrenees, and that's really a problem because the, the transmission capacity is, is really limited. Um, so there's also that. Um, yeah. 
do you see more bricks that with stepping stones that need to be implemented if if the future is is LNG? Um, let's come to to um, to to the implications that this invasion really might have. And obviously, whatever we say now might be very different in in a week or two weeks from now, um, because we don't know how how this. Yeah, how this invasion will 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 turn out and what the political implica implementation implications will really be. But from your perspective right now, Thais, what will we see in the in the near future? What will we see in the next six uh, three to six months, maybe, in terms of prices, in terms of stability, in terms of new policies that are that is being discussed and maybe even implemented on the European level? Well, I, I guess we will see. Um Again, what we saw after the 2014 crisis, which is um, uh, European ambitions to wean Europe off from Russian gas. And uh, I think there will be a plan. Which we weren't really successful with, huh? No, 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 no. Even though. No, no, no. <laughs> I mean, the, the crisis was there, but it was not such a high level security crisis as the one we have now. And soon after the crisis, I mean, complacency uh, returned and, and we sleepwalked into this uh, growing dependence that, that, that we saw over the past decade. Uh, but I, 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 I suspect that this uh, watershed moment that we are now uh, witnessing, uh, this time it will be different. And I think Russia's reputation as a reliable supplier of energy, which it had uh, and inherited basically from the Soviet Union, because Despite the Iron Curtain, gas molecules have been flowing uh, from east to west uninterruptedly, even at you know the, the, the darkest of moments of uh, tension in, 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 in uh, the Cold War. Uh, but that, that reputation as a reliable supplier is now completely shattered. And I uh, imagine that um, Europe will be very serious in its plans to um, reduce the reliance on Russian oil and gas. Um, and I, I imagine that there will be plans that will be announced to, to switch to other sources of energy, other sources of gas, to implement energy efficiency measures, to do all what is possible to, to reduce reliance on Russian gas. Um, and my hope is that, you know, as policymakers are drawing up these plans, they also take into account the other emergency, which is climate change. So there is all, always this, this risk As with LNG import terminals, for instance, that you get fossil lock-in, there's also very bad policy suggestions which are now being made in Italy, for instance, to switch from gas to coal, which is not just very, very bad for climate, but in many cases, it could even mean switching from Russian gas to Russian coal. So that's not really going to solve our, our, our problems. Um, but in any case, this is a this is a probably a defining moment for uh, Europe's relationship with uh, Russia, which has been tainted very much, I would say, by, by the energy dimension. And I, I expect that this time complacency will not uh, return so easily uh, like it did a decade ago. Yeah, I also think that this this crisis that we're having now is far, far bigger. And you, you just call it a watershed moment. But the question is always, you know, there might be just the next, uh, the next big crisis being around the corner. And it's like, Today, I think the the new um, IPCC report today or yesterday was was released, and I feel, you know, if we wouldn't have this Ukraine crisis, then this uh, this IPCC report would get much more 
visibility, which it deserves and is super important. But now we have this Ukraine crisis. And then the question is, what's going to happen in four weeks? And then we might also have this, what you call complacency <laughs> among policymakers, because it's always, there's always something else that's, that's important right now, isn't it? No, no, you're, you're absolutely right. And, um, but, but if, you, if you look at this this way, I, 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 say, I would say we have a triple crisis or triple set of emergencies at the moment. We have a geopolitical emergency in Ukraine. We have a climate emergency, and that has been declared by the European Parliament. Look at the floods, look at the droughts, look at the forest fires that are raging all over the world for the past couple of years. And then we have a, a, an energy price shock, um, which has an order of magnitude uh, that is becoming comparable to the 1973 oil shock. And it means that uh, end users, con consumers are faced with mounting energy bills, which are really, you know, together with inflation, um, becoming headaches for, for ordinary people. And the answer to solve each of these crises is actually the same. It means you need to um, phase out fossil fuels because fossil fuels are the geopolitical power uh, instrument of countries like Russia. It finances their war chests, it finances their war activities on a day-to-day -day basis. Fossil fuels are, of course, responsible, responsible for 80% of global CO2 emissions. And fossil fuels are also, fossil fuel markets are also inherently characterized by price volatility. And you have price spikes that are caused by remote geopolitical events where you, even, you know, before this, Ukraine um, invasion, there were uh, incidents in the Middle East with um, uh, drones and, and missile strikes against um, the UAE from allegedly Yemen. That uh, also was already ramping up the oil price. So you, you're, you make yourself vulnerable to such price shocks related to remote geopolitical events. And each, you know, pick whatever crisis you want. The solution is the same. We need to just wean ourselves off from our dependence on fossil fuels. I think you said that very, in a very beautiful way, Thais, and I, I totally agree. And it's, it, it seems so easy, but it, you know, with, there's so many obstacles on the way as well, but I think, as you also said, pointed out, it's the, it's the only way. Um, but we also need to have to have to take into account that these kind of transitions are, yeah, are social technical are social political and there's a lot of incumbents that that earn a lot of money with the way how the systems are currently set up and obviously it's always hard to give something away that you think is yours and that's you know you know we are now two white dudes who are in the middle of our age <laughs> but i guess if you do one thing for 30 years eventually we also don't want that things are being taken away from us and it's super understandable but yet um and that that these are factors that influence or that that create very inert systems but yeah these need to be broken broken up and i think this crisis even though there is so many people dying and it's horrible 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 it kind of opens a window of opportunity for a real deployment of renewable energy in in Europe, and I don't even, I don't, I feel, I feel gutted even saying that because it that seems as if there's a positive thing to a war, and there's no positive thing to a war ever, but there is something opening right now, and I think we really have to have to make use of that. Um, you said you said that you know it it also will have some implications for energy policy on the European level, and I when you know when you were talking. I just realized again this 
this big project of this taxonomy that we had that uh, when they declared or when the European Union declared uh, gas and nuclear as sustainable, whatever sustainable means, that was just some weeks ago. And now we have this major crisis. Uh, what do you expect that there's going to happen? Will, will gas continue to be sustainable? And probably it might be. But then the question is, like, will investors actually be able to invest in gas further on or like what's your what's your feel obviously it's looking into the crystal ball but like what's your feel what's going to happen there well indeed i don't have a crystal ball um, but i can imagine that um, investments in in fossil gas are now looked at differently than they were looked at just a month ago um, there will be a major policy push against um, our dependence on russian gas and that involves every aspect of the value chain, of course. So if you're an investor and you look at these policy developments and you see the resolve with which European Union, very united and coordinated, you know, is, is taking a stance against Russian invasion in, in Ukraine, I think as an investor, I would have, you know, at least second thoughts. And I don't know what it's going to give for the taxonomy discussion um, and, and, and the, the, the role of fossil gas in that. Um, it was already subject to some specific conditions, of course. Um, however, I, I can imagine that the other um, energy source mentioned there, nuclear, that the, the, the discussions on nuclear will, will tilt towards another direction. I can already see policy debates in Germany and in Belgium, two countries which are planning to phase out nuclear completely. I would say those policy discussions are now shifting into a different um, uh, direction um, without you know, any policy reversal being formally announced by any of those governments. Uh, but you see that there the tables are, are turning. So I, I can imagine that the decision to include nuclear in the taxonomy will not, you know, from this crisis, there will not be any big consequences on, on, on that part. The key part is, is what is happening, what will happen to investments in fossil gas infrastructure. Yeah, no, I guess it's, but it's also to your point, as you just said, that there, maybe the discussion might be even changing. Yeah, I'm like, you know, maybe some context here, but I, I grew up very close to a nuclear waste facility. So I've been on anti-nuclear rallies all my life. So I have a very particular, maybe very German stance against it. And I know there's many other arguments in favor of it, but I could also think that, you know, when we don't have gas, we still need electricity and the question is an easy solution could be for example yeah give, giving uh nuclear power plants another grace period of two to three years but on the other hand what i hear as well is that in germany at least they've been destructed not destructed is not the right word but like turned down and it's really hard like if you want to turn them up again you have to invest even more money and then that this is stranded assets again and then that's assets again that don't go into renewable energy so it's like it's it's probably it doesn't really make a lot of sense to to re revitalize these old old technologies as well but i'm hoping like but i could see that this is a is a discussion that might be popping up now more and more and the question is if we are strong enough to make wise decision to really ramp up the deployment of, of renewables Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm not a dogmatic um, adversary or proponent of nuclear power. Um, I'm a bit agnostic there. Um, however, I do see many people advocating for you know, a lifetime extension of existing reactors for climate reasons, for geopolitical reasons, but they stop there. 
And that for me is not consistent. If you're really concerned about our geopolitical um, vulnerability due to our import dependence for fossil fuels, if you're really concerned about um, greenhouse gas emissions, then you should not stop there, but you should also be advocating for you know a, a, a home renovation wave across Europe, for greening of transport, for you know a, a real Marshall-like plan for energy efficiency, um, for getting off fossil fuels in industry, uh, for changing your agricultural systems, all of these things. Um, but that's something that I don't often see with these nuclear proponents. So. Um, to me, you know, if, if, if you make the argument, can, can nuclear make a contribution to our geopolitical uh, situation now, uh, given our high dependence on Russian gas? Can it make a contribution to climate change? I guess it, it can, but you should be consistent and you should look beyond, uh, you know, the contribution or potential contribution of nuclear and also advocate for progress in, in each of these other areas because we will need lots of um, everything we will need Again. everything yeah it will will not be a single silver bullet it will be a lot of small things that in the end uh, hopefully deliver us uh, or put us where we want to be yeah yeah, I could just, I can just second that and support that. It's crazy. Like in, in the German building sector, which you just pointed out, 75% of the buildings are heated with fossil, with fossil fuels, which is, and, and the, the increase of use uh, of gas has just been, yeah, as increased over the last years. It's, and I totally support that, that, you know, we have to do it all. And there's so many options that we actually have. There is so many options. And then just saying this one technology is going to save it. It's just not going to happen, even though it's no. And, and if you look at um, gas demand, uh, there's a, a peculiar thing about it, um, which you do not see with oil and coal demand, which is quite stable throughout the year. Gas demand is really fluctuating. You have a peak in winter and then a dip in summer. And the peak in winter is just coming from our uh, heating needs in our homes. Right? So if you want to shave off the peaks through energy efficiency measures, um, you could look, of course, at the basic layers, let's say um, uh, gas that we're using in, in uh, electricity in the power sector, and you could try to replace natural gas there. But I think you can make a lot more progress if you just shave off the peaks that are stemming from uh, heating demands for buildings. Um, and there was a calculation by the International Energy Agency, which... Um, said that if you roll out energy efficiency and, and home um, renovation uh, rates, uh, if, if, if you double them, uh, we could save 22 billion cubic meters of natural gas demand by 2030, um, which is sort of um, what flows through the North Stream 1 pipeline half of the year. So that, there's, yeah, that's substantial, and it, you can realize that by the end of the decade. So... Um, there's always this argument that it takes time and it does take time, obviously, but you need to start now to get some somewhere. Yeah. Taking that argument that it takes time uh, in, in order to not even start is maybe not the best advice that someone can take, especially in these kind of hot geopolitical times. Cool ties. Hey, thanks for just being available today for this episode. Uh, for me, it was really enli enlightening and um, thanks for just giving these points a little bit of context uh, for me and obviously also for the audience of the Antonio Energy Transition podcast. Thais, if people liked what they heard, how can they reach out to you? How can they find you? <laughs> uh, well, I guess they can um, visit my website, thaisvandegraaf.be. I also have a Twitter account where I share some thoughts uh, from time to time. And as you mentioned, uh, I, I wrote a book with Benjamin Sovaco from the University of Sussex called Global Energy Politics. It came out with Polity two years ago, but I 
dare to say that its insights are still relevant today. So you wrote something with Benjamin Tomacol. That's nice. He was one of the, uh, he, he's, uh, yeah, he's editor of energy. What's that? Social uh, energy policy, you know, it, social science, energy something? research and social, social science. Yeah. 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 And he, he wrote me back. I want that you change your title. And I'm like, okay, Benjamin, you're the boss. Not really, but yeah, <laughs> he's an amazing, he's an amazing scholar though. Uh, just so audience, if you, if you're, yeah, it's Benjamin has written a really wide, like has written on many, many topics uh, concerning the energy transition and just transitions and also apparently about governance and policy um, topics. Cool. Thais. Hey, thanks for joining for joining me again and um, all the best to you. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye.